0: want to give love to the city that's a fact but you're gonna need help if you want to make an impact well endowed you want to be well endowed with the Edmonton community things really happen when you find that you're well endowed
1: hi everyone welcome to the well endowed podcast i'm andrew paul
2: and i'm elizabeth bonkink This podcast is brought to you by Edmonton Community Foundation, and we're a proud affiliate member of Alberta Podcast Network.
1: Edmonton is full of generous donors who have created endowment funds at ECF. These funds generate money to support charities in Edmonton and beyond.
2: On this podcast, we share stories about how these funds help strengthen our community, because it's good to be well endowed.
1: On this episode, we welcome back guest producer Julian Fade to present part three of Trailheads, a history of urban planning in Edmonton.
2: In Part 3, Julian is joined by two guests to examine car culture in Edmonton and the effects that the culture is having on us as residents.
1: In the first half of the episode, we'll hear from Ashley Salvador, a city planner and president and founder of Canada Backyard Housing Association, which in Edmonton is known as Yegg Garden Suites. Ashley will walk us through the automobile's contentious rise to prevalence through the 1920s, the automobile industry's campaign to crown the car as king of the road, and whether the industry's promise that cars provide drivers freedom actually holds up.
2: In the second half of the episode, Julian is joined by Julie Cusick, president of the Queen Alexandra Community League. Julie was at the forefront of pushing the city to reevaluate its community consultation process around neighborhood renewal. She's also the driving force behind the city's continuing efforts to make streets safer through lower speed limits.
1: We know that car culture can be a contentious issue. We aren't advocating for one side of the debate or another. We are simply examining the dominant culture we have in Edmonton, which happens to be car culture.
2: As we began research for the episode, we decided to look into the history of grants that Edmonton Community Foundation has provided around the issue of vehicles and pedestrians in the city. And there's been a lot of them.
1: Over the years, ECF has helped numerous charitable organizations purchase vehicles. Those vehicles are a necessity for agencies like Edmonton's Food Bank and the Leduc and District Food Bank Association. Those vehicles help them get food to families who need it families that don't have access to their own vehicles or transit for a multitude of reasons.
2: We also recently provided funding to Drive Happiness to install COVID-compliant safety measures in their fleet of volunteer vehicles. This is helping them get seniors to and from doctor's appointments and grocery stores during the pandemic.
1: We've also provided funding to organizations working to create a more accessible city for cyclists and pedestrians, including a grant for Paths for People's Missing Links Project in 2018. The project aims to identify missing or broken links between our city's sidewalks, crosswalks, and bike routes in hopes of filling them in. They identified more than 200 instances where pedestrian and cyclist infrastructure needs improvement, and the research was incorporated into the City of Edmonton's Missing Sidewalk Connections Report in June 2019.
2: When it comes down to it, a healthy, accessible city needs to consider the needs and circumstances of all its visitors and residents.
1: We hope you enjoy this episode. Over to you, Julian.
3: On the last episode of Trailheads, we got a history lesson on how Edmonton was planned in its infancy. With influence from American and British planners, there was a push to modernize this growing city. As cars became more popular, the city and its planners realized they would need to be prepared for this new and exciting technology. However, in doing so, the city unknowingly became dependent on the car, leaving behind those unable to drive due to disability, finances, or simply by choice. On this episode, we're fixing to understand this car culture and what it's meant for Edmonton. Growing up in Edmonton, I learned from an early age that the car is king. The very identity of Alberta's capital city has been intertwined with oil production for more than a century. And the car is the physical manifestation of our provincial prosperity. Of course, Edmonton is not alone in its fascination with a gas-burning machine that, in the minds of many, epitomizes freedom. Across car-centric North America, the automobile has been firmly entrenched as the number one priority in city planning for the past 100 years. An auto-dependent city is one that is developed in a way that makes it difficult for most people to access the city's amenities with reasonable convenience without the use of a car. But this love of cars goes beyond the physical form of a city and begins to integrate itself into the very culture of a place. Take, for example, a newspaper headline, such as Pedestrian Struck by Car, which subtly but effectively shifts blame onto the pedestrian and away from the unmentioned driver of said car, referring instead to an inanimate object as the actor. This could be particularly harsh in the case of a hit-and-run collision where the vehicle just drove away. Articles like this also rarely, if ever, frame these crashes as the public health issue that they are. Nor do they mention the role of poor road design in such collisions. In fact, they don't even call them crashes or collisions, often setting for the neutral term, accidents, instead. And if you hear about said collision on the radio, it may only be in relation to how much drivers will be inconvenienced on their way home. So let's look at a few numbers. According to the data compiled by the city of Edmonton, there were 21,943 collisions at Edmonton in 2019, an 8.6% decrease from 2018. 2,080 of those collisions resulted in injury or fatality in 2019. Though that's a 20% decrease from 2018, it still results in 14 deaths, including 7 drivers, 1 passenger, 3 pedestrians, and 3 motorcyclists. It's difficult to feel good about that in any context, especially the lens of the city's Vision Zero initiative which states no loss of life is acceptable as its core principle. To understand more about car culture and its effects on our city, I spoke to a city builder Slash urban planner slash sociologist.
0: So my name's Ashley Salvador. I'm an urban planner and uh, I'd say kind of a, a grassroots advocate and activist here in Edmonton for urban planning related issues. I'm the president and founder of Canada Backyard Housing Association, which in Edmonton is known as YAG Garden Suites.
3: When we spoke, Ashley was in the midst of preparing her defense of a master's degree in planning from Dalhousie University. Given her work within Edmondson and her academic knowledge of cars and car culture, I figured she'd be the perfect person to help unpack a subject that is often so taken for granted it can be tough to grasp.
0: I think that car culture is something that cities across North America are dealing with. Um, It's cities around the world, actually. When, you know, in in the early days of when cars were first on the scene, it was actually pretty contentious whether or not cars and the personal automobile was going to be the dominant form of transportation. So, yeah, I always think about kind of the, the early 1900s and, you know, specifically the 1920s when cars were they were a luxury good. They weren't something that everyone could afford. Um, they were, for lack of a better word, kind of kind of a toy for wealthy white men. And um, the streets at that time were not necessarily places for cars. They were really kind of messy uh, places for people who were biking, walking, all different ages. People were playing on the streets. Um, children were, you know, it was their playground. And... At that time, when the auto industry kind of came on the scene and said, hey, we, we actually want to, to create this dominant form of transportation and we want it to be the car, there was a bit of a conflict.
3: We're bringing this up because this topic of road sharing has been a tough discussion for our city. It's hard not to blame each other for or feel defensive about how we share our roads. We want to feel safe, but we also don't want that sense of freedom we cherish to be stripped away. And so we seem to fall into two camps, pro-car and anti-car. The idea that there are well-funded militia of anti-car enthusiasts in reflective vests and Birkenstocks doing their utmost to rid the world of motorized transport is a little off. According to Ashley, the reality is somewhat different.
0: But I always like to think that like the war on the car, that already happened. And the cars kind of won. And that happened... In the 1920s, and there was a lot of pushback from people um, and community community advocates at that time because cars were pretty disruptive and they were pretty violent. Um, you know, a lot of a lot of people, a lot of pedestrians and children were actually being killed at that time uh, because of cars. And there was substantial pushback from people. Um, the auto industry actually created the term jaywalker, which I'm sure everyone's familiar with today, as a way to it kind of scold pedestrians, and it was it was almost like this big social marketing campaign to say, hey, you pedestrians, you're the ones that are at fault. You need to get out of the way of the vehicle.
3: In fact, the term J in jaywalking was an early 20th century term for someone stupid or unsophisticated.
0: It was a shame campaign
3: right. toward
0: pedestrians and, and non-car users, and it was an effective campaign. You know, cars started to slowly dominate that space and in dominating that space, they gained a lot of power Um, and slowly but surely pedestrians and cyclists and other forms of transportation like, you know, street cars or or trains, they got pushed to the wayside and, you know, sidewalks were uh, the places for people. Roads were no longer places where children could play. And I think that's that's really key turning point when we talk about car culture, it didn't have to go that way, right? Like it's it's possible for us to use our imaginations and say, okay, what would have happened if the auto industry didn't create those types of campaigns and push so hard for the car to win? And what would our cities look like today? I don't think it's... Yeah, it's not possible to have a conversation about car culture and not have that in the back of your minds. When we think of car culture, again, we think that it's it's inevitable that the car was, you know, gonna be that dominant technology, that, that won out no matter what, and that's just simply not the case.
3: Any discussion of culture is tough, as it's such a nebulous topic that can be hard to pin down. That said, it encompasses our unconscious routines, our traditions, practices, and norms that we go about doing every single day. These actions become ingrained in our daily lives and sometimes literally cemented in place.
0: Whenever you think about anything cultural, it plays out in a number of ways. I mean, it plays out in, in the physical form of our cities. It plays out in the ways that we socialize, the way that we work. Um, and if we're talking about built form in our cities in particular, I mean, look at the, look at the widths of our roads, look at the narrowness of our sidewalks um, and how, what does that allocation of space say about what we prioritize? as a society, right? Simple things like, you know, how, how do we report pedestrian deaths? So if we look at the news and the media, oftentimes we see headlines that say, you know, pedestrian struck by a car or accident instead of the term crash. So, so little things like that are, are quite prevalent in today's society. If we think about, again, the, the vast swaths of land, that we devote to parking lots and not only the, the physical amount of land, but the cost of all of that. So the, the willingness to pay for parking, for roads, for for infrastructure associated with cars. I mean, there's an entire industry built around owning and maintaining cars that, again, we don't think about these things because we take them as, as a given. But that's how car culture is playing out. In, in our cities, and obviously Edmonton is included in that. Cars are dominant, we recognize that they're dangerous, but but we're not willing to take kind of the real underlying steps necessary to kind of balance that hierarchy of mobility.
3: With Yegg Garden Suites, Ashley and her team do a lot of work around small-scale housing and infill projects as a way to help reinvigorate existing neighborhoods, introducing interesting housing topologies, such as the garden suites or even tiny homes, this is in response to, among other things, a continued sprawl outwards that makes cars all the more necessary.
0: Like if you're eating up your, your livable space with parking stalls, you're taking your unit from you know, a, maybe a family size two or three bedroom to a single bedroom or studio apartment. And then you're really limiting who can live there. You're essentially replacing space for humans with space for cars. And in a lot of the instances, we were meeting people who they literally don't even own a car or they live next to an LRT or they're avid cyclists and they have no need for a garage or a parking stall yet bylaws were saying you have to supply parking and then after you know a lot of digging and research we found that not only is this affecting people at an individual homeowner scale but it's affecting you know local businesses the, the viability of larger scale developments are being hampered by parking minimums and of course you know, if you're looking at a city kind of from a, a macro perspective, the sheer amount of space that we're devoting to parking and cars—it's—it's uh, it's not really conducive to the city that we say we want to build, which is an inclusive, livable, human-centered city. Not everyone can afford a car, and not everyone is even able to to drive a car. I mean, you know, children or people who are under the age of sixteen. Or, you know, think about older adults and and seniors who maybe don't drive anymore. What does that say in the context of freedom?
3: A city that aims to work only for drivers ends up working for no one at all, including drivers. Even beyond one's transportation needs, such a city brings with it a host of other issues for its residents. Those people who physically can't drive immediately become disadvantaged. People who can't afford a car are left behind. According to the Canadian Automobile Association, The annual cost of owning a car for Canadians ranges from $8,600 for a compact car to $13,000 for a pickup truck. And these figures include insurance, gas, licensing and registration fees, maintenance, tires, parking, and, yeah, even depreciation. They do not include the cost of actually purchasing the vehicle. Owning a car is expensive. Those that can just barely afford a car live in fear that suddenly it could break down and leave them completely stranded. Cities that are built to cater to car culture also bring with them other major issues that often go unnoticed.
0: Housing affordability is often one that's overlooked. So when we think about, uh, you know, put our developer hats on, and we're we're trying to do a development, margins are already pretty tight, and now we have to put in a bunch of parking stalls. Now parking stalls range anywhere from you know six to seventy thousand dollars a stall, depending if you're going underground. Uh, etc. So what happens is the costs of parking that go into that development actually get passed down to the end user. And in that case, the end user is the person renting that unit. So we have goals for affordable housing. Yeah, we have policies in place that are preventing developers from creating housing that is going to be accessible for people of, of all income ranges.
3: Like it or not, buying a condo in this city is going to mean spending thousands of dollars on a parking stall you may not even use. And it's not that there's any shortage of parking spaces as it is. As mentioned in our previous episode, 1950s Edmonton pushed for more parking spaces in its downtown and has been partially to blame for the well-known problem of gravel lots starting our downtown like chicken pox. And yet, you often hear from drivers that parking is hard to come by downtown.
0: So you're absolutely right. There's definitely this perception that there's not enough parking. I think a lot of it has to do with what North Americans think is normal for uh, access to parking. You know, people expect that they're going to be able to park steps away from their end destination and that they're not going to have to walk a block or two. Um, And the same thing goes not only in downtown Edmonton, but we see this in residential areas as well. Folks assume they own the space in front of their house, uh, and that they own that street parking stall. And I mean, I've even seen instances where people go out and put, you know, pylons down because that's my stall, I own that. Um, so yeah, expectations about how easily we should be able to park and find parking are very high. Now, if we actually look at the number of stalls in downtown Edmonton, there's a lot the challenge, I think, often comes with wayfinding and people's ability to identify where those stalls are. You know, humans by nature they want they want to take the easiest route. They want to be able to have surface parking lots where they can, you know, visually see them with their eyes. Uh, they can see where they're going to park, where their destination is. That's what that's what they desire. So in Edmonton, in our downtown, there's actually tons of underground parking. Being able to direct people to those stalls in a way that is um, you know, it, it lowers their stress levels. It makes them feel comfortable. That's an easy step I think Edmonton could could take to reduce some of those anxieties around um, lack of parking, which, like we said, not technically a reality.
3: <laughs> Part of the annoyance for drivers comes from broken promises. Cars have been a symbol of freedom in film and TV for years. It's It's unlikely that you'd even go a single show on cable TV without seeing a commercial for one. One thing you'll notice about those car commercials is that they rarely have any other cars in them. It's just the open road and easy driving through narrow mountain passes and wide open highways. There's rarely, if ever, any mention of traffic, parking, gas stations, rock chips, door dings, photo radar, and all the other realities of owning a car. It always feels to me like we're being sold a bill of goods that a car can never deliver on.
0: I mean, the whole promise of the car was to be able to go fast be free, go wherever you wanted, and to go faster than those who don't have a car, right? And it was this—it was this symbol of of wealth and prestige. And you know, when when mass production happened, uh, there was this promise that everyone could have access to this wonderful new mobility technology that's going to get you places faster. Uh, you're going to be seen as as a high class individual. But then it's like, wait a second—if everybody has it that That kind of diminishes those promises, um so in a sense it's it's almost like the tragedy of the commons, like you know we we all have it, therefore, the benefits that were promised to us nobody gets them. so I like to think of White avenue because white avenue is kind of our it's the street we point to when you know our friends are coming to town and you know we want to go out it's it's the go to place get when I walk down white avenue i can't I cannot help but think like. These cars going 50 or 60 right beside me, it's pretty threatening. It's pretty loud. It's not a great pedestrian environment. And, you know, I'm on this narrow sidewalk trying to, you know, walk walk side by side with my friend and we have to like scoot over so that pedestrians can pass us. And, you know, if we were to eliminate one lane of that and just extend the sidewalk, which it's interesting, has been done um, under the, the COVID-19 adaptations, to allow for social distancing. That can make a world of difference for for, uh, pedestrian experience and for local businesses. It's funny, people think that if you don't have parking right outside a store, that no one's gonna shop there. And there's there's numerous studies that have been done that say pedestrian traffic, those are the folks who are actually gonna be making substantial purchases at people's businesses.
3: A prime example of a negative impact vehicle-first design has on local businesses is the story of 118th Avenue, an area I grew up in. For decades, 118th Avenue was a bustling shopping district in Edmonton. Waves of newly immigrated families moved into the Alberta Avenue area and opened businesses. At the time, 118th Avenue was Edmonton's primary east-west corridor. That all changed in 1984 when construction of the Yellowhead Trail was completed. A new freeway diverted traffic from 118th, and eventually the once thriving consumer district began its painful deterioration. All these seemingly unseen effects, pedestrian shame, housing affordability, abundant land use for parking, and seemingly ever-increasing sprawl, and we haven't even touched on the health implications of cars and car culture. Issues like air pollution, life-altering crashes, noise, and both physical and mental health
0: the health piece is just so fundamental to everything related to urban planning. And when we're talking about, you know, how we've built our cities for personal automobiles, there's huge health implications there. I mean, not only on the emissions side from everyone owning and driving a car, but walkability has just it's just non-existent in many locations in Edmonton and cities across North America. And obviously that leads to rising obesity and a bunch of health problems. And I always like to think of our cities as our human habitat, right? Like that's, that's what we're dealing with here is it's a habitat. And we've designed ourselves a habitat that is making us sick and unhealthy and unwell and socially disconnected from one another. And we do have the ability to shift that and to change that. And in many cases, we know what the right answer is and we have a path forward. It's oftentimes you know, political will and and fear of the unknown and just being too comfortable with our current way of life uh, that is preventing us from getting there. When we have a group of individuals who are so reliant on one form of mobility, the car, to access, you know, the essentials of life, like they can't go to a grocery store, they can't go visit their friends, maybe they can't even go to the park without a personal automobile. And I always say, like, is that is that really freedom? If you, if a prerequisite to accessing the essentials of life is a personal automobile, that is not freedom. So there's 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 two sides to that conversation, um, and I think the fact that we have literally built our cities around the car, that's, that's what's limited freedom.
3: This culture of car first living has real and long lasting impacts on the neighborhoods of Edmonton. Once you pick up on it, you can realize how car culture has changed your life. It may have decided where you live, where you shop, what activities you partake in and even how many kids you should have. To get right down to the street level of the effects of car culture. I spoke to someone who has successfully pushed back against it in their own Edmonton neighborhood.
4: My name is Julie Cusick, and I'm the president of the Queen Alexandra Community League, a volunteer community organizer for about a decade, and I'm currently the executive director of the Tomorrow Foundation for a Sustainable Future.
3: Living in the Queen Alex community, Julie was preparing for a neighborhood rite of passage, something every area in Edmonton goes through eventually. Only this time, she was going to make sure it was done a little differently. Right,
4: so in 2013, the fall of 2013, the city of Edmonton came to Queen Alexandra Community League and said, we're going to be doing neighbourhood renewal. Let's have a conversation about that. And so we did the typical conversation that was happening at the time. That percolated in my mind for several months. And I realized that we actually have a couple of problem streets in our neighbourhood. We have 106 Street and 76th Avenue. Both of those are collector roads with buses on them. They actually also used to act as shortcut arterials, where there was quite a lot of traffic volume, quite a lot of traffic speed, and it was literally dividing our neighborhood into four quadrants. People weren't allowing their kids to cross the street to go and see friends on the other side. They weren't allowing their kids to go to the playgrounds or even walk themselves to school you had painted bike lanes and actually the cyclists weren't even using the painted bike lanes. They were using the sidewalks instead, which frustrated both drivers because the painted bike lanes weren't being used and it frustrated the cyclists because they didn't feel safe on the road. So clearly the road configuration wasn't working. And at the time what the city did is they only considered a like for like renewal of a neighborhood street. So exactly what you have is exactly what you get in the future. And that just didn't make sense.
3: For the most part, these neighborhood renewals would go like this. One, rip up the old street, then two, put fresh streets back down exactly as before. The problem is those streets were planned 50 years ago, and often with little feedback from the people whose houses lined those streets. Julie felt like there needed to be a better way.
4: So um, myself and a few other community members got together and said, let's create a new vision for these streets. And we did. Um, it was called "Walk Bike Live," And we came up with a set of six principles for these streets. We wanted them to be things like an active transportation corridor, a catalyst for uh, for infill redevelopment because they would become showcase streets rather than people um, avoiding their front yards, avoiding cutting their grass, avoiding redoing their shingles because they just hated being in their front yards along these streets. They would actually enjoy being on their front streets and all of a sudden the properties would be better kept. So what we did is we created this this document, this high-level vision, took it to the city of Edmonton and said, "Look, this is what we want to do. Can we be a partner with you? We'll bring the community expertise and you can bring the engineering and the technical expertise and we'll help we'll, we'll work together to figure out how we can fix this."
3: Julie and her community league wanted to introduce a new way to do neighborhood renewal a process that would engage with the people living in the community, and instead of using the last 50 years as a roadmap, set up the neighbourhood for the next 50 years. We were
4: often pushed around to, or pushed towards the uh, traffic calming program, and we rejected that, because yes, while cars were a large part of the issue, we didn't want to use that approach, because what that said is certain types of transportation choices aren't allowed here. And that's not at all what we wanted to say. We wanted to say right now pedestrians and bikes and people living on these roads don't feel like they belong and we just want to include them too. So it instead of saying you're not allowed, it was let's allow more people to use these same streets. And so when the city came to us 9 months later, they said great, we can do Queen Alexandra, but because they're connected to so many other neighborhoods, we actually have to do seven neighborhoods. So what we did is uh, transformed the QA Crossroads initiative into the Engage 10676 initiative, which was actually the first of its kind in Edmonton. We created a core group of City of Edmonton staff, a couple reps from each of the seven neighborhoods that share these streets, and we developed a new engagement model that partnered the way that we suggested that partnership should happen. So that included um, you know, uh, some heavy community engagement we didn't ask for votes, for example, in the typical way that used to happen there. Do you like this kind of bike lane better or this kind of bike lane better? And then the public would sort of say what their uninformed opinion was. And then the city would be like, oh, okay, well, people seem to like this one better. So we'll do that. Instead, what we said is here are the different types of bike lane infrastructure. What does this type of infrastructure allow you to do versus this one? How does how would this type impact your life in this way or this way. And so we really tried to educate people around the trade-offs of the different types and how they may or may not use that and how that may or may not fit well into that particular situation. So we developed a terms of engagement and it was really a rewarding experience because we had such a great turnout for some of our open houses that the city actually ran out of materials. Um, we just had so many people turn up and then at subsequent engagement events there was actually city staff that were off on of maternity leave but who had previously worked on the project that actually came and brought their baby because they just really wanted to be part of this this project from start to finish and that was neat because you know we came from a situation where i think city staff really hated these public events to actually they just kind of wanted to be part of it we had a really great momentum and so the bottom line is These streets went from dividing places to real um, welcoming places. Now we have people walking and biking and cycling all the time on these streets. You see more people sipping their coffee out in their front yards, uh, more sidewalk chalk than there ever used to be. And we are truly getting that renewal as well. A lot of the, the older homes that can't really be salvaged have been renewed into duplexes or other single family homes or even some townhomes, and it's great to see. What the the larger implication of this is, we found a different way to, to deal with the issues that sometimes come with taking a car only focused approach to a roadway and took a community based approach to a roadway that includes all road users. And now the neighborhood renewal program in Edmonton doesn't take a like for like approach only. It also includes that wider vision and the wider opportunity for community members to come together and say, rather than building, rebuilding the past 50 years, let's look at the next 50 years and how we can continue to grow community via this program.
3: A new way to engage the city on neighborhood renewal was just the beginning for Julie. She was also part of a group of citizens who pushed for slower speed limits and who hoped to see all non arterial roads, that's the ones in front of your house, slow to a maximum of 30 kilometers an hour.
4: So in, and I wanna say it was spring of 2018, City Council had a meeting around reducing residential speed limits, and a whole bunch of people came out to speak, um, and I was one of them. And an idea that I proposed then was something called a slow zone, which said that perhaps rather than looking at a blanket speed limit reduction across the city of Edmonton, we wanna actually look at the places that are more densely populated, that have currently more concentration of people who are walking and biking places, Currently, perhaps more concentration of people who don't own a car or don't own multiple cars and look at reducing the speed limits there first as a way to pilot it, but also a way to start small and get it right.
3: Her idea came to be known as the Yegg Core Zone.
4: What that idea was is, again, let's take one manageable piece in the center of Edmonton, make that 30 kilometers an hour on our residential streets, and let's leave the rest. That way, everybody has an opportunity to experience what 30 kilometers an hour is like for them as a commuter and as a community resident. But we're not committing to the whole city where we know that actually there's probably less support out in the suburban neighborhoods than there are in the central core neighborhoods. Not only that, but the central core neighborhoods tend to be built a little bit differently than those suburban neighborhoods. There's more of that grid-like pattern.
3: Julie and her cohort pitched the city on a 30 km per hour speed limit on local roads in front of people's houses. They also proposed keeping collector roads, those are the ones with the bus routes that run through residential neighbourhoods, at 40 km an hour. And that arterial roads should also remain at their typical 50 or 60 km an hour. They took this plan to committee and to the public.
4: So we appeared on multiple media channels, we got together, you know, some information about it, passed it around across Edmonton networks, got people informed, asked people to, to send in emails, got people to speak, and we had more than a dozen speakers come out to the committee meeting discussing this.
3: Julie's team had momentum going into the committee meetings, and initially the city was on board and even wanted to take the initiative further. The team was ecstatic, thinking that their initiative would succeed beyond their wildest dreams. But as things often do with politics, the tone shifted. By the time city council reconvened on the issue a year later, the plan that was passed looked differently than the original vision. Instead of forming a core zone speed limit of 30 kilometers an hour, council decided to implement 40 kilometers an hour across the city, including some high pedestrian areas, including Jasper Ave and White Avenue. While the talking points for slowing the speed limit down included that it was backed up by data, even the city's own data showed a full 22% reduction in all collision types at 30 km an hour versus only a 6% reduction at 40 km an hour. Council's new 40 km limit will come into effect in 2021. Though Julie and her team did not see the formation of the Egg Corps' zone speed limits, she feels that the city is beginning to turn the corner when it comes to creating an inclusive community for all road users.
4: Edmonton is making slow progress towards uh, slower streets. I do think forty kilometers an hour is, um, well, imperfect, um, a step in the right direction. You know what we we were successful in shifting the conversation not from whether the city of Edmonton should have slower streets in front of people's homes, to what the number should be, how slow should it be in front of people's homes. So there was definitely a win there, and so that's great
3: these types of changes can often anger people who drive but because commuter roads are such a small part of a normal commute the change in travel time is often incredibly minor but the changes to a neighborhood can be huge people like julie will continue to push for more equitable city streets in search of a place that works for everyone regardless of their preferred mode of transportation
4: only the edmonton of the future that i would like to see would be one that people of all ages and abilities and backgrounds and, and all of that really feel like they can belong to and they are a part of and they have a part to play in continuing to contribute to Edmonton and to shape Edmonton, that this is their city. And I think another thing that's quite important to me is that we're a healthy city, that we have a city with clean air, clean water, and that we have a protected green space around the river valley. We have adequate and more than adequate, enjoyable green spaces for residents to access right near their homes. So whether you're living in an apartment or condo building, or whether you have a single family dwelling with a backyard, there is a green space where you can go to and and enjoy outdoor air and outdoor nature and maybe larger gatherings with friends that you can't accommodate in your own private dwelling. So we are a community.
3: In the last few years, Edmonton has made plenty of advancements in making this place accessible by more than just cars. Huge investments in LRT construction, the elimination of parking minimum policies, and bike lane construction are all steps in the right direction if your goal is to push back against car dependency. However, as we've seen, this shift has proven to be an uphill battle. In the next episode, we will explore Edmonton's transit culture and look at how it is poised to shape our city for the next 50 years. Thanks for listening to this episode of Trailheads, the history of urban planning in Edmonton.
1: Thanks very much to Ashley Salvador and Julie Cusick for sharing the time with us. And many thanks to Julian Fade for bringing us this story.
2: Stay tuned for part four of Trailheads in our next episode.
1: While you're waiting for the next episode to drop, head on over to ecfoundation.org to see what's been happening at Edmonton Community Foundation.
2: And also be sure to check out our show notes for the links to the ton of research material we've used for this episode.
1: Well, friends, that brings us to the end of the show.
2: Thanks so much for sharing your time with us.
1: We hope you enjoyed it. If you did, be sure to share it with your friends and family. And don't forget to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Those reviews help new listeners find us.
2: And you can visit us on Facebook where you can share your thoughts and see some pictures from the podcast.
1: Thanks again for tuning in. We've been your hosts, Andrew Paul.
2: And Elizabeth Bonkig. Until, Until next time. The Well Endowed Podcast is produced by Edmonton Community Foundation.
1: And edited by Lisa Pruden.
2: You can visit our website at wellendowedpodcast.com.
1: Subscribe to us on iTunes.
2: And follow us on Twitter at ECF.
1: Our theme music was created by Octavo Productions.
2: Check them out at octavoproductions.com.
1: And as always, don't forget to visit Edmonton Community Foundation at ecfoundation.org. Well endowed.